Well, good morning once again, and I'm going to just move ahead with the assumption that you can hear me. I do know that uh, with uh, technology like this, uh, there's sometimes a bit of a lag, uh, but uh, that's probably beyond my ability or beyond Mr. Fleming's ability at this point to do anything about it. So I'm just going to begin and uh, read the scripture and pray and then move through the message and uh, and then I think Michael will come back up and pray our final or sing our final hymn with us, and then I'll give the benediction. So the word that we're looking at this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 13, 20 to 21. I suppose in many ways it's my favorite benediction. Uh, it is the benediction that we have customarily used um, during our time of the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the Lord's Supper time because of the elements within this benediction that uh, actually correlates well with what we observed when we observed the Lord's Supper. But I thought as perhaps one of my final messages to my beloved church family, um, I would want to spend a few minutes uh, working through this benediction because of the incredible blessing that God pronounces in it. And because of what it has to say about the Christian faith and our life and our purpose. So Hebrews chapter 13, 20 to 21, reading from the NIV translation. And within the context of the message, you'll understand why I've chosen this translation over the ESV or another. The writer says, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do want to give you thanks and praise today for all that you have done for us. Uh, which really is stated so well, so succinctly within this benediction. We pray that as we think about it, meditate upon it, work through it, take it apart, put it back together, that our lives will be enriched with a sense of all that you have done for us, what you have made us to be, what you have called us for, and that above everything else, there is the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, uh, give us then the greatest here and the deepest desire to see realized in our lives your truth and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to begin by thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, in my very early life as a Christian, uh, this book had uh, something of the greatest significance for me. Really, it, it gripped me with its opening lines. Most translations say, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But the particular translation I was reading during that time, uh, early on, the first year or so that I was in college, read this way, emptiness, emptiness. All is emptiness. You see, my full conversion to Christ, uh, which came about in the previous year, uh, 
really came in the context of looking at life and thinking deeply about life and coming to the conclusion that there was a great emptiness in life, especially a great emptiness in terms of the vanity of human beings seeking after personal glory or personal fame or personal importance or even personal significance. Uh, what went through my mind again and again as I was finishing high school, contemplating college, contemplating the rest of my life, was that there has got to be something more, something deeper, or life is truly empty. And what perplexed me, what was constantly the question upon my mind was this, is there nothing greater to live for than our own personal lives, our own personal ambitions, our own personal sense of significance? Now, that question is very, very human. It's so much of the, predic the human predicament because human beings very naturally strive for significance. We strive for a sense of importance. We strive for a sense that our lives actually matter. Our, our lives actually count for something. Yet, even we who are Christians, who have been given the fullness of the answer biblically, even we as Christians, sometimes at different phases in our lives, actually struggle to hold on to the answer that we've given, the answer that is given to us in Christ, the answer that's given to us in the story of redemption. And it's that concern which has prompted me to teach on this passage just two verses, technically known as a benediction. Now, what is a benediction? Of course, a benediction is a kind of prayer. It's one that is a pronouncement upon the people of God, but it's a special prayer of petition. It's asking that God would specifically do something for those being blessed and specifically do something that he has already promised. Now, in the Old Testament perspective, in terms of tracing back the concept of a benediction, one would discover that a benediction is exactly the opposite of a curse. Because in the ancient world, a, a curse was a, a wishing of something bad to happen upon a person, but it was a wishing that was connected to the gods or to God, that a person was wishing that God would do something evil upon a person. It would be to speak that evil wish in the name of a god or gods, and that name was supposed to magically bring about that curse. But the blessing was, in fact, the very opposite. A, a blessing is also a kind of wish, it's a desire, it's a petition, but it is spoken in the name of God. It is seeking for the good that God would do. And biblically, of course, it's going to be speaking something that God has already promised that he is well pleased to do with respect to his people. This particular benediction here at the end of the book of Hebrews speaks to the human desire for significance. The human desire in terms of the quest for glory, because here in these two verses, we actually see God's answer specifically stated to that human desire. Here, we actually find the words that tell us what our hearts should actually desire and ultimately desire and uniquely desire. Because these verses tell us what God has designed for us to be, 
how God has designed for us to live. And so if we were to put these two verses together and capture the meaning of them in a particular theme, we could state it this way. Because God has ordained for us to live for the glory of Christ, we should set our hearts on the fulfillment of his blessing in our lives. Now, with respect to these uh, two verses, we can discern three particular themes that are that are wrapped together uh, that capture this idea. There is the goal of this blessing. There is the nature of this blessing. There's the author of this blessing. And if you were to think through the goal and the nature and the author, you would see that I've actually stated these three ideas in terms of the reverse order in which they actually appear in verse 20 and 21. But I want us to start where the verse ends, these verses ends, and that is with the goal of the blessing, because I want us to be thinking through what the writer has to say with that goal specifically in mind. If we're going to experience the blessing of God, we need to understand the goal of that blessing. And the goal of the blessing of God in the life of a Christian is for the sake of the glory of Christ. It, it is all designed toward the glory of Christ. And that's what we find here at the end of the benediction. The final part of the benediction uh, ends with to whom. And it says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And of course, the to whom here is Jesus Christ. And, and that is why we make this important observation that, that the goal of the blessing that, that the writer uh, prays for and pronounces upon the people of God in the, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the blessing pronounced upon God's people is correlated, ordained toward, purposed toward the glory of Christ. It, it, it's not a blessing. God uh, bless us in ourselves, for ourselves, unto ourselves. It is God bless us in, in such a way that that blessing will be instrumental, uh, directed toward, purposed toward the glory of your son, Christ. Now, it's this one thought, this truth, that brings the whole story, the biblical story together, creation, fall, redemption. And it brings it down to our own perspective and level. And the personal perspective of the purpose and significance of our own individual lives uh, falls into into to this particular uh, kind of understanding. You know, if we ask, why did God save me? And, and what is the purpose? What is God's purpose for my life? It boils down to this one thing. God has saved you for the glory of his son. Now, we, we often wrongly think that the whole plan of salvation, the terminal point, is on us. We think, God saved me so I wouldn't have to go to hell. God loved me and saved me so that I would not be separated from him. And brothers and sisters, that is true. But it's not the whole truth. The gospel does not finalize and center upon us. The gospel is ultimately 
about what God is doing in the redemption of broken human beings like us that would manifest and bring about the glory of his son. And, and, and because that is so, you and I will never be happy in this life if the goal of our lives is something less than the glory of Christ. You and I will never have satisfaction in this life. We will never understand our true significance. We will never know how much we matter until the glory of Christ is our consistent and deepest heart's desire. Now, I want to come back to this, this thing about this the human heart and this desire for significance. This desire is normal, but is terribly, terribly broken. Uh, the brokenness shows up in all sorts of way in contemporary life, and it really has all through human history. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted the entire song uh, yesterday when I was young. I want to requote uh, just a couple of lines in it that epitomize uh, this this brokenness of this quest for human desire or human uh, significance. The writer says this. I ran so fast that time and youth at last ran out. I never stopped to think what life was all about. And every conversation I can now recall concerned itself with me or nothing else at all. Now, a, a, a writer uh, recently or re-recently uh, published this idea that the understanding, when, when we understand life this way, we are wrapped up in meology, meology, the study of me, meology. When, when we make ourselves, when we make our own life the point of life, when, when all of life's meaning and purpose and significance boils down to that that the human trinity of me, myself, and I. Now we can spot meology. Whenever we see people who can't stop taking selfies and posting them, when we know people who always talk about themselves and what they have done, when we see people constantly posting on social media what they did for the cause of social justice, desire for significance in play. This attempt to build up self-importance. This attempt to promote self-significance. But we are seeing something that is very, very broken. It's the sad part of the human condition that in this way, people are shouting, please take notice of me. Please recognize that my life matters. Please affirm me. Please like what I do. Please give me some recognition. People are hungry to know that their lives deeply matter. But this cry, this desire, this need, it's truly hopeless when we expect other human beings to confer that meaning and significance to our lives. To our lives. We, we might reflect upon how, how that cry 
that expression of this deepest need to be significant in the eyes of other human beings is the most deceptive work of the serpent. God did not design any human person or any human experience to affirm and guarantee to your life its meaning or its significance. God never designed it to be that way. And yet that is how countless human beings plan and pursue their lives, trying to make their life significant in the eyes of others so that they feel somehow in some way they truly matter. What we know from Scripture and what we find in this benediction, there's only one path, one true path to true significance. It is to see that you are happy and satisfied with your life in light of the glory of Christ. Christ is your consistent and deep heart's desire. Look at this benediction again. All that God does here, all that God says here, he does for the sake of the glory of his son that shall be forever and ever. Or to put this another way, to assume and presume upon the language of the shorter catechism. God's chief end, glorify his son and to love him and to enjoy him forever. You and I can have no greater purpose, no greater significance than to join with God the Father and having as our chief end the love and concern and living for the sake of tri- the sake of Christ. Further, Jesus himself said, with respect to trying to establish significance to our lives out of the things of this life, he said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world or lose or forfeit his soul? You cannot satisfy your soul with what the world has to offer because your very life, your very soul, your very inner person was created by God to be fulfilled in the glory of his son. And any purpose and any pursuit that is less than that will always leave you empty, always hungering for something more. The goal of this benediction, the goal of of God's word blessing you with this benediction is nothing less than the glory of his son. Then, Then moving from the third part to the middle part of this benediction, well, we see what the writer has to say here about the nature of the blessing. And to state it very succinctly, very simply, it's all about transformation. It is about being changed from what we were to what God wants us to be. And that transformation begins seen in the two main verbs of verse 21. So pulling God as the subject into the beginning of verse 21, we would say, and may God equip you with God for doing his will. And he work in us what is pleasing. Now, these two verbs to equip and to work in us, 
speak to two aspects of who we are and what we are in terms of transformation. It speaks to our conduct in terms of how we live, and it speaks to our character in terms of who we are. It speaks to our doing and to our being. Now, with respect to our conduct, we see here that we're promised in this benediction, we're promised by this blessing, that God equips the believer with everything good for doing his will. That is, this is God's way of focusing upon the believer's way of life and obedience to his will. Because we are by nature deprived of any good to be able to do any good, it's absolutely necessary that God would equip us as Christians to do the good that is needed to do God's will. And we have the promise here within this blessing that if this is what we seek with our whole heart, God will be equipping us with everything good for doing his will, everything that we as believers need to fulfill this purpose of glorifying Christ, this purpose of living according to the purpose that God has created for us. But the second thing here is character. Uh, what, the, what the blessing says is that God works on us, on our inner person as a believer. God works in us what is pleasing to him. And we understand this as Christians. It means God working upon our hearts, God working within our souls, God working within our inner person and character. But here is something we often fail to see, especially during a time of the pandemic and the politics that affect us all. All of the situation and circumstances of life are in view in terms of what this blessing and benediction is all about. All of the things that are happening around us and with us and to us, God is using all of our situational context to do this equipping and to work in us. Uh, you know, I've talked with brothers and sisters in Christ who said things like this. I just feel like this job so compromises me from doing what God wants me to do. I feel like uh, this illness that I'm constantly fighting is, is keeping me from pursuing God's purposes for me with respect to the kingdom of God. I, I feel like this particular time in my life is just wasted. Brothers and sisters, think about the name of our church, Providence. To not understand the providence of God means we're not going to ever understand that God is currently equipping us with everything good for doing his will. God is currently working within us to, 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 will, to do all that is pleasing to him. It is right now in these circumstances that God has designed to do his work. It's right now in these awful politics of the day. It's right now in, in, in this awful pandemic that afflicts us. It is right now in these circumstances. All of the trials are designed by God to change us into the likeness of his son. Every single circumstance is designed to equip us for doing good 
to work in us what is pleasing to him. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul confirms this and think about how Paul did not say, this is true of you in the best of times. I know when things are rough, it's hard to be pursuing the Christian life. No, Paul says this is the Christian life daily, day in and day out, in season, out of season. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, this world as it is right now, this world that's afflicting you, this world that's bothering you, this world that is set to bring upon the Christian church Nero's persecutions but be transformed in this context by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or in a similar way, in Colossians chapter 1, the apostle talks about the way he prays for the Colossians and for all Christians. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, meaning the day that we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then, of course, Paul says that same thing in a very succinct manner. Uh, at the climax of that great salvation passage in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Or bringing together two passages in the book of Philippians, which are often brought together because they belong together, Philippians 1, verse 6, Philippians 2, verse 12b and 13, where Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Uh, we, we, we recognize here that, that in the present circumstance, the very nature of this blessing is transformation, where, where God is working with respect to our conduct and how we live our lives, seeking the good that we can do, as well as with our character, God working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. That's what our hearts need to seek that we would embrace the nature of this blessing and, and desire God to be transforming who we are so that we could be more pleasing to him. So now when we put the two parts of the benediction together that we have looked at, we can see that God has designed our lives to find their ultimate God has designed your life to find its ultimate importance and significance and purpose. 
God has designed your life that you would know that your life truly matters for the purpose of the glory of his son to live unto the glory of Christ. And to bring this about, God equips you in all of the circumstances and conditions and trials and struggles of life. He does all of this so that you might be equipped to do everything good in those circumstances. And in this process, he is working in you those things that are pleasing to him. And that is what and where we need to seek our heart's deepest desire, living to the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is not your job to fix the politics of this broken country. And it is not your job to probe and to understand the mysteries of why God has unleashed this pandemic upon this world. But it is your job and it is your calling to live for the glory of Christ and to look at all of the things that are happening in your life and all of the things that are happening in this broken country and all of these things that are happening in this fallen world as the biblical means by which God would form in you Christ-centeredness, Christ-glorifying purposes for life. Our significance is not political. Our significance is not self-importance. Our significance lies in living for the glory of Christ. Every other way is shifting sand, and every other way cries out emptiness, emptiness, vanity, vanity. And that brings us then to the third part of our message, which is really the first part of the benediction. That brings us to verse 20, where we see that the author of the blessing, uh, the one who gives this blessing, of course, is God himself. But note that the writer of Hebrews doesn't simply say, now may God equip you and work in you. Rather, he goes into what we might consider a somewhat complex description with respect to God and salvation. And it does seem like the writer was deeply moved by the Holy Spirit to give a small but a densely packed lesson here on theology and salvation. And so this verse 20 contains a, a five-part description of God and salvation. Now, I would point out to you that the Greek word order here with respect to verse 20 begins this way. It starts with the God of peace. It mentions bringing back from the dead. And then it mentions the great shepherd of the sheep. And then it mentions by the blood of the eternal covenant. And then it states our Lord Jesus. Now, the NIV translation gives us a different word order. But that different word order has a special kind of logic to its translation. And this is why I really prefer the NIV translation here. Not only is it what I memorized, but there's a logic to this translation that makes the teaching of this benediction uh, eminently simple for this reason. The NIV recognizes that in this benediction and blessing, 
we have the three perspectives of salvation. We have the eternal, we have the historical, and we have the personal. And that's the order in which the NIV follows, which makes the clarity of this benediction eminently helpful for our understanding of what is being said. So in the first place, the benediction begins with the eternal perspective, and it starts with the God of peace. Now, this is pretty significant in the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews uh, is very careful to describe with respect to the old covenant in particular how the God of the covenant was a God of wrath, a God of consuming fire, a God of holy justice, a God thundered out the law at Sinai, as well as speaking to God as being the God of redemption and salvation and the God of love. And so to speak of God as the God of peace is to make an important, a very important and significant theological point because it is essentially to say that we find in the God of peace a perfect reconciliation of holy justice and holy love. That God has brought about an objective peace without violating his own nature, without sacrificing the demands of justice or the demands of love. Now, at the human level, there is no real reconciliation between these two, between the true demands of love and the true demands of justice. Whenever they come into conflict, there is no human resolution to the forces of justice and the forces of love. I've shared this uh, with you um, several times before, but I believe that the story of Camelot, uh, the musical movie version, presents this conflict between the demands of justice and the demands of love in a very, very compelling, compelling way. Uh, in the storyline, we have King Arthur, we have his beloved wife, Queen Guinevere, and we have his best friend, Sir Lancelot. This triangle of this threesome, these, these three who love and care for each other is at the very center of the story because the story is a great tragedy. It's the tragedy that the queen and Lancelot betray King Arthur with their forbidden love. And the Knights of the Round Table find out. Lancelot is pursued, but he escapes. The queen, on the other hand, is arrested and sentenced to die. And now King Arthur faces the collision of justice and law with respect to his kingdom and the love that he has for his queen. Because the law says, kill the queen. That's what the law demands. That's what justice requires. Or kill the law and spare the queen, which is what King Arthur so deeply yearns to do. But Arthur can't have both. He can't grant mercy without sacrificing and destroying justice. But God is not so conflicted. 
God does not weaken the law or surrender the demands of justice in order to carry out the demands of love. There is an objective and true reconciliation of love and justice, and that's why the writer says it is the God of peace. And that objective peace is brought about by the blood of the eternal covenant. This phrase declares that in eternity past, God established his covenant as the means to reconcile fallen human beings to his love and to his justice without weakening either. And that the way in which he has done this is by the blood of Christ, the blood of his own son. To open this up a bit, what this means is that in this eternal covenant, this covenant of redemption, the Son covets with the covenants with the Father to take upon himself to be the representative and substitute of the sheep, of the people of God, so that Christ would then live the perfect and sinless life in their place as their representative in order to satisfy the moral designs of the law, the moral demands of the law, all the moral requirements of justice on behalf of the sheep, and then Christ would die in their place as God would lay upon him their iniquity. And fulfillment of those famous lines that we find in Isaiah 53, that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The blood of this eternal covenant to satisfy the justice of the law of God. But then the benediction moves to the historical perspective, speaking of Christ being brought back from the dead, speaking of the resurrection. That is the resurrection of Christ in which we have the proof that justice has been satisfied. It is the proof that upon the cross, Christ has fully propitiated the wrath of God. Christ has fully expiated our sin and our guilt. Christ has fully ransomed us from death and from hell. And Christ has fully reconciled us to the Father so that the Father is free to regard us no longer as his enemies, but as citizens of his kingdom, even family, adopting us so that we become members of his own household. And then the last part of the benediction moves to the last part of the first part of the benediction moves to the personal perspective where the writer speaks of our Lord Jesus, the power of that personal pronoun to speak of our collectively believers. We can speak of our Lord Jesus, but personally we can say my Lord Jesus. It's the ability, the right, the authority we have to claim Jesus specifically as our own and to say, he's my savior. He's my redeemer. He's my Lord. Further and finally, we see that he's designated then as the great shepherd of the sheep which tells us that Jesus is everything that fulfills the, the great psalmist shepherd psalm 
Psalm 23, that begins by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Christ is the great shepherd of his sheep. The great shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The Lord Jesus, who is ours, and we are his. And so the author of this blessing is the God of peace, the God of the eternal covenant, who brought back from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep by that blood of the eternal covenant, who then equips us for doing good, who works in us to be pleasing to him, all for the great purpose that we might live for the glory of his son. The point of this message is to rescue us from ourselves, to turn us away from meology, to turn us away from us to reject that horrible trinity of trinity. myself and I, where every conversation, every call concerns itself with me or nothing else we can reject Facebook or Instagram being pictures of ourselves refuse to live for the sake of other people's adulations and recognition the most gifted man in all of human history also for a season of his life was the most self-aggrandizing purpose person in all of human history that is Solomon the son of David who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes who came to the conclusion that of all of the great achievements all of the great desires wine, women, song living for the pleasures of this life living for the glory of fame that all of its conclusion for the pleasure of this life living for the glory of itself is emptiness and my prayer is that we would embrace in every way the blessing of this generation to see that God's purpose for our lives is so much greater than living for ourselves because God has purposed us as believers to live the glory of his son and therefore we should set our hearts in this fulfillment of this blessing God in our lives amen so much greater living for ourselves God has purposed us as believers for God and we set our hearts that everything with respect to this benediction would be true in us. That we would earnestly desire to see you working and equipping us with everything good for doing your will, working within us all that is pleasing to you, that we might live to the glory of your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen.